Phillies have an all-star this year, Pat Neshek. We'll talk about Neshek and some of the worst all-stars in recent Phillies history. Also, Nick Williams is up. And is Cam Perkins' time up? Scott Kingery, is he going to come up? All those questions will be answered. I feel like we're answering them every week. That's all we can talk about anymore. Welcome to the Phillies Nation Podcast, episode number 15. Yo, Phillies Nation. Welcome to the Phillies Nation Podcast. This is episode number 15. I am Tim Malcolm, the editorial director of philliesnation.com. Go to philliesnation.com for all of your news, rumors, information, and more about the Philadelphia Phillies. You can find the podcast on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, and YouTube.com slash philliesnation. You can also find Phillies Nation at Facebook at Facebook.com slash philliesnation, Twitter at philliesnation, and Instagram at philliesnation underscore. The episode today, we have interesting podcast, a really good one, where I talked to somebody who has been doing some really great work for over two decades in the Philadelphia area, Steve Bandura, who is the founder of the Anderson Monarchs, and they give kids who lack opportunity the opportunity to play baseball and other sports on a regular basis, and they thrive in doing so and really become better people uh, and themselves become role models in some ways including one person that Steve discovered himself, who is one of the really great stories of baseball the last 10, 15 years, Monet Davis, who, of course, led her uh, Taney team to the Little League World Series American Championship game. Uh, She, of course, one of the brightest spots as far as young baseball players in the entire world. So Steve... And I talked a lot about her and about the Anderson Monarchs and how great they uh, they do. They just celebrated a 20-year anniversary of their first barnstorming tour. It was a really great uh, event that they had a few weeks back. So uh, that conversation will come up in a bit. I also spoke with Mike Sadowski, uh, and that'll be in a few minutes. Uh, Mike and I, of course, philliesnation.com, we talked about some of the things going on in the Phillies outfield. Nick Williams is now up with the team, and he played in the weekend series against the Mets. Played pretty decently, too. And we talked about Cam Perkins and if maybe his audition is sort of war thin. And also about Scott Kingery and if potentially he comes up to the big show this year. He got promoted to Lehigh Valley just this past week and has started out guns blazing. Uh... At the time of recording with Mike, he had three home runs. Now he has four. He hit one on Sunday evening. But Scott Kingery, could he make Philadelphia this year? Not quite sure, but we'll uh, talk about that, of course. And then later on in the show, Mike and I will talk about the All-Star Game, as the Phillies do have a selection this year. It is Pat Neshek, the man who uh, had an ERA, he has an ERA under one and was picked up in the offseason season in a trade, which was really a salary dump for the Astros, the Phillies trading cash or a player to be named later to Houston for Neshek. And he's delivered uh, in just about 30 innings. He has an ERA under one. He struck out about 28 batters, 30 batters, uh, and has walked only about four. Um, so he's done a really great job for the Phillies. But of course, you think about it, the Phillies lone all-star is a middle reliever. 
which really is sad. And it's really appropriate. I mean, of course, Major League Baseball does let every team get one all-star. That's the rule. The Phillies really don't deserve one. I mean, Neshek is deserved deserving of the war of the all-star game. I'm mixing my words here. He's deserving of the all-star game for sure. But if I look at the Phillies as a whole, I just don't think they deserve to have a player on this team. They are terrible. As we all know, they are four games ahead of the Giants for the worst record in baseball. Still on pace for 100 losses plus. Some people have said that, you know, maybe Aaron Altair uh, deserved to be in the All-Star game. I don't think so. You know, Altair has played very well this year. His OPS is 860. But there are so many other outfielders in the National League who did not make the All-Star game who are more deserving than him. You look at Adam Duvall of the Reds, who has an OPS of 895, has played terrific for them. And the Reds are very bad, too. But Duvall didn't make the All-Star team. So if Duvall's not making it, then Altair should not make it. Plus, Altair has had one really good month of May. His April was pretty decent, but he was hurt, remember, for part of that month. His his month, not hurt, excuse me, he wasn't playing a lot in the month of April. He was on the bench. But his month of May was extremely good with Kendrick out. And since then, he's been really cold. He hasn't hit uh, very well over the last few months. In May, he was hitting 300 with a 402 OBP and a 560 slugging percentage. But since then, June, 250 with a 286 OBP. July, 222 with a 300 OBP. Five homers overall in the last two months with 13 RBI. So, I'm looking at Altair and I'm saying, hey, maybe this is just a Don Brown 2003 Part 2 thing. Where you have a guy who's had a very hot month, month and a half. And it's cold after that. And if you remember, Don Brown was so hot that by the time he was done his hot month, I think it was June of 2013... He led Major League Baseball in home runs. Remember that? We all thought he was going to be a, the, 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 the top home run hitter in baseball that year. Altair is not even close to that. So it's a different story here. It's a guy who's played very well for a little bit of time. Otherwise, has been below average. He doesn't make the All-Star team. I don't think he deserves it. I mean, he's played well this year, and hopefully he continues to get back on the horse and play really well this year and help the Phillies and all that. But... As far as All-Star, no. And plus, the Phillies just don't deserve one. They just don't. A couple more wins this week, but more losses than that. Good pitching from Aaron Nola and Nick Pavetta. That's good to see. Uh, Hopefully, Nola, as we continue to hope, can be the anchor of this rotation. Pavetta has pitched very well. He pitched well against the Mets, and that's great to see. Otherwise, we're still kind of hoping. You know, Ben Lively, what can he be? Not quite sure. Jeremy Hellickson. Can he get some trade value? I don't know at this point. And we're talking trade value. You know, Nishak probably has some value, but what about Daniel Nava? I don't know if he has a lot of value. And we're going to talk with Mike about that in a moment. But at this moment, I think we're looking at the Phillies and saying, boy, can somebody give us something by the trade deadline? And then once the trade deadline hits, are we going to see guys like Reese Hoskins? Are we going to see guys like maybe J.P. Crawford? Are we going to see guys like, you know, potentially... Scott Kingery. Well, Mike and I are talking about that in a second. Let's talk more about the outfield and some of these young guys who the Phillies might want to give a look at. Now I bring in Mike Sadowski of philliesnation.com. We're going to talk a little bit about the outfield situation. Of course, this last week we saw the promotion of Nick Williams to the majors. Mike, what do you think of Nick Williams' first thoughts after the first three games of his uh, Phillies career? 
I think it's really good that he played all three games. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, when, when he came up, when they announced he was going to come up, I, I, you, you want to be excited, but then you're like, well, he's, he's going to a crowded outfield situation where we're not even sure if he was ready to go to, to begin with. So they're probably only going to play maybe one. We know they're going to play in one game. Maybe he'll get two. But the fact that, he's getting th- that he got all three games and looks like they're ready to test him out as an everyday player, I think is really fun and really exciting. And I think I think he handled this well. I mean, they were showing some backstage stuff with them where, like, people were wanted their picture taken with them and he didn't even know who they were and had no problem with that. So it seems like he's seems like he's acclimating to the major league system. And I think that's, that was always when we saw some of the off the field stuff or, or, or some of the ways he had to be disciplined in the last year since he came over from the Rangers. I mean, I think that was my biggest worry mm-hmm. was that he's, he's a, at that uh, nuke Lelouch 10 cent head, but, uh, but it seems like he's got everything going for him and seems like he was able to acclimate pretty well this weekend. So I think that's the most exciting thing, that it, it, this moment didn't seem too big for him and the fact that he got to play all three games. I don't care if he went 0 for 9 or 0 for 10, yeah. but he didn't. Yeah, I'm just happy to see that he came up and played every day and didn't. And the moment never seemed too big for him. Yeah, got a couple singles, I think a walk or two. He got hit by a pitch. You know, He, he, he was definitely involved in the offense this weekend against the Mets. Um, Corey Sharp spoke with him a while back, and Nick had actually mentioned that for the first time, he was really not thinking about moving up to Philadelphia. He was concentrating on Lehigh Valley and just hitting and getting better. And that I think that helped. I think you know if, if, if that's true, his his mentality seems to have matured a little bit this year. You know whether you take that highly or not, you know grain of salt, whatever. I think he definitely uh, has shown maturity in a lot of ways, and I hope he stays. So that's the question. Howie Kendrick is. We're going to find out today and Monday about an MRI that he's having on his left hamstring, which has been hurt. And he hasn't really seen consistent play really this whole year. Um, whether or not Kendrick's injury happens, I mean, Todd Zalecki of, uh, of MLB.com had said that Howie, Howie, excuse me, Nick Williams might be here only temporarily because Howie might come back and Cesar Hernandez would come back and then things would have to shift or whatever. Um, what do you think? Do you think that Williams is here for good or do you think that if a Kendrick MRI shows that there's no real damage to the hamstring and he can come back, do you think that Nick Williams is back down in AAA? I don't see the point in sending him back down. Um, I mean, there's enough bodies on this team that can – easily be gone. Yeah. Um, and I think we all, I think we all know that. Um, but I'm not the general manager of this team and, and believe it or not, I know we say that, Hey, they need to do this, need to do this, need to do this. The Phillies know better than us, especially when it comes to someone that they have scouted and spent every day with for the last two years. They know Nick Williams better than we do. And they know what his, where his material level is, where his head's at. And they might've, they might have took, taken him aside before he got called up and said, look, this is a two-week thing. We have Howie and Rapan, but you're going to be right up. Come up and show us something to make us want to keep you up here long-term and bring, or bring you back and make sure that you're long-term. And maybe they said that to him. I don't know. But if they do send him back down, I, I think that could screw with them a little bit. Um, I, I I'm not that worried about it, especially we were just saying how hey, he's matured and well, if, if he's matured, then he'll be able to take it, the fact that he's going to have to go back down and, and force his way into the lineup to come back up. 
um, because geez, we, there's a, there are other people in Reading who are forcing their way into lineups more than than Nick Williams was, even though he was playing really well. Um, it just so happened that his position came open first. But I, I just don't I don't know where. I don't know. I don't know how it would improve this team to send them back down. Yeah. Um, or to not to improve this team to improve this franchise. Yeah. Uh, send them back down. So I don't see why you send them back down. Find someone else to get rid of. No. Um, I, I think. I think when you say improve this franchise, you know the trade chips here are Howie Kendrick and Daniel Nava. Howie Kendrick yeah. right now has been half hurt this year. I don't know how many teams are going to value him that highly and want to give up a big prospect for him. Uh, with yeah. Daniel Nava, again, same thing. I mean, Daniel Nava was a walk-on to this team. He came in, in uninvited to spring, tra- invited to spring training and won a roster spot. You know, at any point, Daniel Nava can just turn into a league average, below league average player again. So, yeah. you know, what is the value there for those guys? Long term, I don't know if the Phillies need that value. They'd rather have Nick Williams playing every day in the major league level. I think you're right about that. Yeah, so so find a taker for Nava. If it's a bag of balls, so be it. Um, but there comes a time when, and I'm, I was all in on Hinky. I'm I'm all in on Klenfeld for what he's doing. <laughs> but there comes a time where you have to get these guys in the lineup. They yeah. can't be just. They can't sit on the sideline hurt. You can't like. You can't. When someone makes a a, a request to some agent makes a request to sit for the rest of the year so they can win Rookie of the Year next year, I mean. That that in of itself, and I don't know what kind of requests Phillies agents have made, but there comes a time when this pro- the process has to end. You have to start seeing if these guys can play. Yeah. And Nick Williams is one of those guys. We want to know if he's going to be part of this future. Daniel Nava is not part of the future. Howie Kendrick is not part of the future. Right. So unless you're – let's get from point A to point B without having to go through point A through five, A, 8.5. Um, yeah. Uh, Let's let's get there. No, I and I, I, I think the sooner, the sooner you get there, and with guys like Nick Williams, who you think are your future, you do it. Daniel Nava is not in your future. Howie Kendrick is not in your future. Nick Williams is. Right. So let's figure out if he can play and then move on. Right, and and I agree with you completely. You know, I think the the point of guys like Nava Kendrick and Pat Nishak and such were kind of they're the bridge to what is coming. As long as what is yeah. coming is ready to play at the major league level, and I think that's happening now with Nick Williams. Cam Perkins is another one who uh, was seemed to be ready to play at the major league level. He had such a great season so far for Lehigh Valley. Now he's not quite a prospect. He's 26 years old, a little bit old for a prospect. I mean, he's still a prospect, but old again. But yeah. he hasn't played too well to start uh, his Phillies career. I think just 143 with a 194 on base percentage. Uh, only one extra base hit a double so far. He's had 10 strikeouts and ha- has only walked once. Do you think Cam Perkins, uh, do you think he's the one that goes down if Kendrick comes back or something like that? Because I feel like he always seemed to be like a fourth outfielder type at best, right? Yeah, he is. I mean, he's a 4A player. Um, there's really no getting around that. And we'd love for guys like him and Stasi to 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 have to build on those kinds of hots like Stasi in, in spring training, Perkins for those first two months, first two and a half months. We'd love for them to come up and prove us all wrong that they're not 4A players, that they can be these these uh, otherworldly guys that come up and and end up carving out a ten year career somehow. But most of the time, that's not the case. I mean, scouts have jobs for a reason, and scouts told scout, scouts get it wrong every now and then. But you you hear about the times they get it wrong all the time. Mike Piazza getting drafted in the sixty eighth round or whatever. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but you don't hear when they get it right because they're almost always right. right. You only hear when they're wrong. Uh, and so most of the time, they got this stuff nailed down. And I mean, it, it, they've always everyone has always said that. Stasi is a kind of a 4A guy, and Perkins is a 4A guy, and 
but that doesn't mean you don't give them a chance. Now they've had their chances and they've kind of proven that they're four A guys. So I mean, I have no problem putting Perkins back down. Uh, just there's good logic for it now since he really has looked lost. Um, I like that. I every time I've seen, I mean, I've seen him ground out to the pitcher. I think three times, but every time <laughs> he is on his horse, like he is sprinting down to first. Hey. I hope like. I hope McCannon grabbed O'Double by the back of the head and said, "Watch this, please." <laughs> yeah, dude, we always got to get an O'Double talk in there, don't we? Someone has to say something <laughs> about how O'Double doesn't hustle. Uh, it's okay, it's okay. Um, I want to real quick touch on Scott Kingery, who got promoted to AAA before uh, between last week's podcast and this week's podcast. We were all waiting for that promotion, and now it's happened. He started off like a man on fire. He had three home runs almost immediately, two in a game. Uh, but he's sort of leveled off a little bit. He's hitting two, around 290 or so with about a 270 OBP. Not really superb, but the power was there to begin with. First things first, do you think Scott Kingery's coming to Philadelphia this year, Mike? Uh, this year, maybe like September Cup of Coffee. It looks like Lehigh Valley is going to be in the playoffs. Yeah, and I'd rather, I'd rather that core, those guys that are down there, play together this whole year and go to the playoffs together and win in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And go win the National League and then go and uh, the, that AAA championship thing that they do. I mean, I'd like the, I'd like to see as many of those guys stay together and win on that team and take that team to the playoffs and win a triple A championship yeah. just so they can get a taste of it. And so they can do it together. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's I, a lot, I think there's a lot of value there. I mean, people don't talk about that enough that if you get a bunch of prospects who are playing at the same level, let them just play out the year together because they're playing so well together. And when they come up to the majors together, they know each other, they know each other's strengths and weaknesses. They can be in the clubhouse together and work off each other. And that helps so much more. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I, I know if people say, well, they, eh, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Whatever. Well, I mean, haven't you ever played sports before? Don't you no, don't you like being on a winning team on a championship team? <laughs> I mean, I've been on I was on like little league teams that won championships, and some of those guys are still my best friends, and we still get around when we when we go out together. We still talk about the stuff that we did when we were eleven years old for a little league championship. So, I mean, to do it at a triple A level, that's a bond that these that these guys are have. So, why not let them get down there and learn together and learn to win together. I mean, they did it at Reading last year. They did it at, at Lehigh Valley last year. Let them do it again at Lehigh Valley this year. So they come up ready to go next year. Yeah. Um, as for his hitting performance, you know, the hitting is actually something that people don't even look at his defense, how strong it is. He's one of the better defensive second basements you'll find in the minors right now. Plus, he can run. He's got a lot of intangibles going for him. But his offensive performance, what are you looking for for Kingery here uh, the last two months of the – two and a half months of the year here with Lehigh Valley? Uh, well, I hope that he's – that <laughs> this power surge, I don't know where it came from. And maybe he should stay, maybe he should stay in the minors more because as soon as, as soon as he comes up, I think there's going to be a plastic cup in his locker. Someone's going to be asking him to, to possibly uh, <laughs> give him a sample. But there's uh but I'd I'd like to see that power continue. If he hits ten more home runs, that's what, that's thirty two um for the year and i that'd be great. Um yeah. if he if he hits three hundred, that'd be great. I mean, I'd I'd love him to just keep this up. I know that baseball America already has uh labeled him probably the Philly's best prospect right now. Wow. Um so he just leap he just leapfrogged six six, seven guys in the because I think he came in as like the sixth or seventh uh number six or seven prospect. Yeah, he was somewhere around there. Yeah, after he didn't have a great Arizona Fall League and got hurt at the end of last or, or kind of hit the wall at the end of last year, um, but now that now that he's turning up, I th- people are saying now he's their best prospect, and 
even J.P. Crawford and his 45 walks or whatever he has, he, not good enough. Um, so Scott Kingery, I'd like to see him just finish out the end of the year, hit 300, hit 10 more home runs, steal 20 more bases, and just come in raring to go next year, give second base to him. Yeah, I think that's what we all hope, and I think he'll probably do that. I think next year when we go into spring training, we're all hoping that it'll be Scott Kingery's job to win at second base, maybe Cesar somewhere else, and we can get some value for him. We'll see what happens there. Uh, but, yeah, a lot to look forward to the last couple months with Scott King Ray and Leah Valley and Nick Williams in the majors and so much more probably happening in the next month or so. Mike Sadowski, we'll talk to you later on. Sounds great, Tim. My guest this week on the Phillies Nation podcast is someone who has been helping people in the Philadelphia area for now 20 years uh, share the love of baseball and more than that really grow as people uh, get opportunities that they may not have uh, gotten before. Uh, baseball. Uh, I'm with Steve Bandura, who is the founder and program director of the Anderson Monarchs. Steve, welcome to the Philly Nation podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, well, first off, congratulations. 20 years. Uh, you guys had a big ceremony uh, about last week or so uh, for, for the Monarchs? Yeah, well, it was 20 years since our first uh, barnstorming tour that we took in 1997 to commemorate uh, Jackie Robinson's 50th anniversary of breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball. We've actually been around for 28 years. Okay. Um, and uh, the first barnstorming bar tour, where was it? Well, we we went to uh, well, the, the goal was to barnstorm all the way out to uh, the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City. We started at Jackie Robinson's grave site in Brooklyn. We were playing games in every city along the way too, so we went from uh, we went from New York to Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, Dyersville, Iowa, the site of the uh, Field of Dreams movie mm-hmm. uh, site, um, then Kansas City, then where we spent the day with Buck O'Neill, which is outstanding. Yeah. Um, we went there from there to St. Louis, Louisville, Pittsburgh, uh, Cooperstown, and then home. Okay. Uh, now, let me get um, kind of what you guys are about out, because there might be listeners who don't know what the Anderson Monarchs are and what you have been doing for all that time. Uh, just talk a little bit about what the Monarchs are, what you guys are trying to do. Well, we're trying to bring um, organized sports to inner city kids and kind of just try to kind of level the playing field and, and give these kids what kids in the suburbs get as far as opportunity goes. And, you know, what they do with that opportunity is on them, but... Uh, we just feel like every kid deserves the opportunity to play, especially today in this pay-to-play environment, AAU-type environment. Um, it's 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 tough for a lot of families to afford uh, what mm-hmm. a lot of kids are doing now. So we have baseball, basketball, soccer, um, and what we do is we put the, the teams together when they're seven or eight years old, and then we keep that same group of kids together year-round, and they play three sports together. So. And then we try to provide them with the best uh, academic opportunities uh, we can, which is really the goal. The goal from day one is to graduate from college. That's uh, mm-hmm. that's what so, our goal is for guys. So, so how do you uh, give them academic opportunities? Do you work with schools, or do you have your own uh, instruction? How does that work? Yeah, well, we monitor the grades and and the report cards, and and the parents are always you know keeping us abreast of what's going on academically. Uh, with the Monarchs kids, and, and if they need help, we, we get them tutoring. If uh, uh, if we feel like they're capable of more than where they are, the school they're in, we, we try to uh, open some doors to them. We've got a really good relationship with some of the, the private schools in the area, and we've got kids in pretty much every 
every private interact school uh, out there right now. And and you mentioned, you know, the fact that you're keep, the parents are keeping you abreast. Um, how important is it for sort of a, a sports organization, sports youth organization, to sort of take that mantle as a place where kids can not only be athletes but also be, you know, uh, work on their schooling and, and get the help that they need, support that they need. Why is it important that you guys are able to give them that? Well, I mean, in the inner city, like the, the, the schools aren't always the greatest and the school environments aren't always the greatest. It's, um, it's just basically it's a fact. And, um, you know, kids in the suburbs and parents can in the suburbs a lot of times can afford to send their kids and get them that supplemental help that they need if they do. Um, uh, many of them don't because the schools are, are better to begin with and better resourced. So, you know, we're, we're just trying to fill gaps. What was and, that? And, you know, to me, I mean, the academics is, is what it's all about because you know, they're going to stop playing sports at some time, but you have your yeah. education, you know, and, and uh, you know, you're, you're in a lot better place uh, for the rest of your life than just, just, just playing sports. Was that uh, part of your initial sort of mission when you founded the Monarchs 28 years ago? Could you already see that, that whole total scope there? Well, I mean, originally I was, I wanted to, I just went, when I found out, I started as a volunteer and I actually went, actually, to Marion Anderson Rec Center to start a boxing program. But when I found out that there weren't any opportunities for kids to play organized sports in, in that South Philly neighborhood, I was just blown away. And so the first thing I wanted to do was just give the kids, you know, a, a place to play and give them the opportunity to play. And then with baseball, I want, you know, I thought the best way to do that would be to introduce the kids to the history of the sport and the rich history in the African-American community, especially uh, with Jackie Robinson with the Negro Leagues and, and, and put those families back in touch because baseball had basically skipped a generation or two in our inner city neighborhoods um, just to put them back in touch with that history and, and, and get them, you know, emotionally uh, invested in it uh, was key. And that's where the education part came in with, like I said, with Jackie Robinson and the Negro League piece. And then as we went along and I, I saw some kids with a lot of potential academically, we just started reaching out to some of the schools and, and uh, you know, some doors were open. So it's been great. Uh, how, how did you uh, how did you learn about the history of the Negro Leagues and African-American baseball, you know, before integration? Yeah, I mean, I grew up, I grew up in northeast Philly in Mayfair, so I wasn't getting too much of that history. Yeah, so yeah. when I when I started at, at the rec center, there were some older guys in the neighborhood that would just tell me stories about when they were younger there at Marion Anderson Rec Center. It was a bigger, the big building wasn't there at the time. It was a bigger field, and you know, on Sundays it was like the hotspot for for black baseball in the city. And guys from the Philadelphia Stars were actually played there and signed right there on that field. And they were in, so it intrigued me. So I, I started researching it, and it's, it's an amazing chapter in our history that really should be taught more. Um, and then, you know, naturally just tying it in with the kids, showing that, you know, I knew that they would be the first African-American team to compete in the best leagues in the city in baseball and in soccer. Um, so the Jackie Robinson as a role model for, for them was, was perfect because we were integrating silly leagues 50 years after he integrated the major league. Uh, typically, how, how often do the kids sort of latch on to that history and start to embrace it? Does it happen right away that they kind of learn about Jackie Robinson and they 
just want to learn more immediately or does it take a long time for some of them? How does that usually work? Well, I mean, we introduce it right from T-ball. There's a book called Jackie Robinson and the Story of All Black Baseball. So that's their first taste of it. And a lot of times it's the first taste of the parents, too. And and we just increase that knowledge. And then as they get a little older, we'll study the history of that. We'll study, like the, you know, we've watched the Ken Burns 24-hour baseball documentary several times through the years uh, with different groups of kids. And we've taken these barnstorming tours to relive what the Negro League teams did. And, you know, we were... We, we travel in a 1947 bus, the same year Jack broke into the majors. It's a long story, but we, we actually own a 1947 touring bus. Well, how, how does original it interior, no bathroom, no air conditioning. And when we go on these tours, some of them as much as, as 23 days at a time, the, you know, our rule is no electronics, or there's no cell phones, there's no laptops, there's none of that. Um, it's, it's old school, and, and, you know, the kids take pride in that. Yeah. I feel great about recreating what the what their ancestors have done. Well, well you, you got to tell me a little bit of a long story. How did you get the bus? <laughs> when I first started, the, 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 when I first came up with the idea for the first tour, you know, it was celebrating 1947. You know, Jackie broke into the major's 50th anniversary, and a friend of a friend who I've never met before found this ad in the back of a auto collector's magazine. Um, he had a stack of like a hundred magazines. He threw them all out except two because he wanted to read the artic- a couple articles. And in the back of one of those was the only ad this guy ever placed for this 1947 bus. And it was in Connecticut, sitting in a barn for 25 years, untouched. Oh and Tom Tom Murphy, who's a friend of a friend, took it upon himself and, and, and was back and forth to Connecticut several times working out, working on the bus, seeing if he could get it running, and eventually he did. And, and you know, at 11 p.m. the night before our first tour, we we found somebody to insure it, and we were on the road the next day. It was, uh, it was a pretty amazing story. And then in 2004, when we took our next tour, uh, Mitchell and Ness actually bought that bus for us. We had rented it the first time. Wow. So Peter Capolino is the owner of Mitchell and Ness, and, yeah. and you know, he was a big big supporter of ours and, 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 you know, purchased the bus for us. So we own it to this day. And do you guys still use that on your barnstorming, like the most recent ones? Yeah, we, we took a tour, and, and it's hard to do a lot because it's, it's very expensive. you got to raise a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so we can't do it every year. But we did one in two, two, 2012. That was a tribute to the Negro Leagues and Jackie Robinson. And in 2015, we took our uh, 13-year-old team on a 23-day 21 city civil rights tour where we we barnstormed all through the deep south and visited all the civil rights movement and start uh, locations and museums and people that were involved in the movement and it, it was it was really special. Yeah, I mean, you guys uh, visited Hank Aaron on that trip, correct? Yeah, we met Hank Aaron in Atlanta. We met John Lewis. We, we met with John Lewis in in, D, in D.C. And ironically, you know, I was teaching the kids all along. We we. We got together every Friday night for six months, and we studied the civil rights movement. We watched every documentary out there. We read books. We had discussions. And uh, and my biggest lesson I tried to teach the kids was with everything going on in Baltimore and Ferguson and all that, that, you know, just because the laws changed 50 years ago doesn't mean that people's attitudes changed with the law. And, you know, the first night of the tour, we were on the road when the Charleston church shooting happened. Um, so we woke up the next morning. Like I said, we had no electronics, so we, we woke up and saw it on the, in the 
on TV on the hotel lobby, and you know, actually spoke with John Lewis about that that day. It was it's pretty special. And and how engaged are the kids when you talk with them about civil rights and about you know what what has and has not changed and how much further things have to go in this country? How how engaged do they get and and how much do they kind of understand and really have like a good conversation with you and other adults about that? No, I mean, I, I waited till they were 13, that group was 13, and it's a really smart group to begin with. A lot, a lot of those kids people are familiar with were on that uh, tiny little league team in 2014. Um, and they were really, really into it. In fact, we had done so much on that tour over 23 days. Even after we got to the deep south, we went, we went north, and we went through Boston and, you know, Fenway Park and St. Victorino had the kids in the locker room and most when they threw out the first pitch at Fenway. We were inside the Green Monster. We were guests at Yankee Stadium. And we did all this tremendous baseball stuff. We went to Coop Sound. And when, at the end of the tour, when the kids were asked what their, individually what their favorite moment was, every single one of them said meeting John Lewis. Wow. Because... You know, we had seen every documentary, and he's everywhere. He was like a rock star to them by the time we took this tour because they see him on the bridge in Selma. And we walked the bridge in Selma when we were there. Um, and they saw him on the Freedom Riders bus. And, and, you know, he's at the March on Washington. And, you know, he was he was a hero to the kids after, you know, after all that studying and all that research. And then, you know, we met him on the first day, and that, to, to those kids, that stood out as their, their, their best memory of the tour. So... I showed you right there that they that they get it, and you know, we go. They see how it's it's everywhere we go when we play in national tournaments and uh, in baseball and and you know playing in these big soccer tournaments. We are always the only black team. There's never, in fact, when we go to tournaments, we've been asked what country we're from 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 other players from other teams because at the higher levels you just don't see this. so they get it that they're trailblazers and and they take pride in that and you know we we faced our share of some you know ugly incidents usually from parents and and older people not too much from kids that we play against because I think kids today are a little more uh, a little more global through social media and, and and get it a little more than the generation before so um, no they 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 really do understand it and they really embrace it. Well, you know, I, I just knowing from afar what you guys have done, and obviously you talked about Monet Davis, who is really the most famous, I think, Anderson Monarch we all know of. Um, there is certainly a lot of pressure, and there's a lot of um, sort of outside noise that comes to your group, uh, and especially to Monet when she was accomplishing so much with the Little League World Series and then in the aftermath of that. And, and really kind of becoming a role model of sorts for a lot of people and, and handling herself with such class. Um, what, how, how, how is that sort of, how have you been able to look at that as someone who like, has to make sure that these kids sort of stay grounded and sort of understand what's happening around them, but at the same time, you know that, you know, you, you have on your team someone who people look at as someone who can change the conversation in a lot of ways. How, how are you able to kind of negotiate that? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like I said, those kids have been together since they were seven. Some of them since they were three here. They've known each other. Um, so they're, and they played three sports year round. So they're, they're, they're tight like brothers and the sister. Like they're, they're just like family. So, um, you know, her, most teammates kept her grounded. Like they wouldn't ever allow her to get away with 
you know, having a big head or anything like that. And she's not that person to begin with. And there was no jealousy that that you would expect on a normal team. There there was no jealousy. Everybody, you know, was was proud of her. Her teammates were proud of her. They all protect her when we go out. Like, they put her in the center of the circle when we walk us. Everywhere we go, even still, everybody wants to take selfie. Everybody wants autographs. And, you know, she does that. But sometimes, you know, we're in a hurry. We're trying to get somewhere. And the thing is, you stop for one selfie and you turn around and there's 50 people in line waiting. And, and um, you know, they, they've sheltered her and protected her. And, you know, just like just like brothers. And uh, so, so we really haven't had any of that uh, negativity. Uh According to the Tome of Knowledge Wikipedia, you had sort of, I don't want to say discovered her, but you sort of like, you know, kind of put her in a position to play uh, baseball. Is that right? Is that is that the true story? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just <laughs> saw her one day throwing a football on the, out on our field with some of our older Monarch players. Uh, she had been there with watching her cousin play, and um, I just, you know, I just saw her throwing spirals and, and the effortless you know, effortless throws, and I, I went over to her and introduced myself. You know, I asked who she was and gave her my my number and said, give it to your mom and have her call me. And we were just starting uh, our basketball season and just started practicing. There was a fall baseball game that I saw her at, and uh, she showed up to the first basketball practice, and she's been with us ever since. And she had never played baseball. She had she'd never played soccer before, and um, you know, she just she grew with the rest of them. It, and what what was it like uh, seeing her? You know, as you said, it, it she she was really you know grounded, and the kids made sure of that because they all are together and they all treat each other like family. But what what was it like to see her sort of represent? Because I mean, people were pegging her as a representative of black women across the country and in the world. Even uh, what's it like seeing her kind of handle herself in that and? Just be who she is because she's done such an amazing job of handling herself all these years. Yeah, she was she was great. I mean, she uh, there was a lot. Like people have no idea how much attention there was on her. I mean, it was just it was nonstop for the first over a year. I mean, I say nonstop. It's multiple calls every day for interviews and, and appearances. Every talk show in the country, Dancing with the Stars even wanted her. Um, it was just, it was crazy. It was just insane. And, and people, you know, adults treat her like she's older than she was. She was 13 years old. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're treating her and, and like she's, you know, like 17 or 18, you know, and they lose, lose sight of the fact that she's just a young kid. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she, she was a heck of a role model uh, and, and is a heck of a role model. I mean, she's been a, uh, she was one of the kids I recognized the academic ability and the, the analytical ability in her, and, and she's been at Springside Chestnut Hill Academy since second grade, the end of second grade, and, you know, she's done really well academically, um, and so she's, you know, she's she's a role model on so many fronts for, for girls that come from the inner city. She would get on the bus every morning. She'd be the first pickup for the school bus every morning at 6.30. She would get to school at 7.50 every day. Never complain. This is this is second grade through eighth grade. So it's, you know, never complained. That that person you see on TV with that calm demeanor, that, that's the way she is all the time. So the, um, 
the 20 anniversary, 28 year anniversary of the first barnstorming tour, uh, you guys had sort of a special day planned. Can, can you tell me about what was going on there? Yeah, we we were able to bring back uh, nine or ten of those guys from that from that original team. Some of them are living out of town right now, and one's in the military in Korea. But uh, we recognize them. We 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 always recognize our college grads. Anybody that plays for the Monarchs from a young age and then goes on to graduate from college um, gets a sign. It's, they get a, a four foot by four foot. Uh, sign on our on our baseline census. It says their name and the school they graduate from, and, and there's the logo on there. Um, and that's there to to inspire the younger kids. And right now we have 23 signs up there, and next year we'll probably have four more go up, and hopefully that'll you know grow exponentially. Um, and then we actually retired the number of one of our monarchs, who is uh, Alex Wilson, who went on to play in college, graduated from college, and came back and is coaching coaching every day um, our younger kids. Um, so we recognize him by, by retiring his number. And it was, you know, it was a really special day. Well, is that is that the, the best part of what you do now? Uh, I mean, maybe it's not the best part. One of the better parts, I guess I should say, uh, being that you've been doing this for so long and you get to see kids, uh, men come back, and women come back who have been part of the organization and are doing great things and graduate from college and are, you know, working professionally and excelling in life? Yeah, I mean, aside from the fact that it makes me feel really old, it's, <laughs> it's just great to see that. I mean, to see them graduate from college. And the best part is to see these guys with their own kids now. The older guys are in their 30s, my original monarchs, and they have their own kids and they're really good dads. And to me, that's the ultimate right there. They're just great dads, a great family man. Um, and I, I, you know, it feels good to know that you, maybe you had a little little part of that in that. Uh, uh, what, when's the? Uh, is there any time this summer that people can come out and see the Monarchs play? Or you guys have any games coming up this summer? Or any tours or anything like that? Yeah, I have. Uh, we're, we're, we're actually we're not going on any tours. We're going to a tournament in, in Myrtle Beach at the end of this month for about eight days. Um, but a lot of my, my 15-year-olds, most of the 15-year-olds are playing, actually going to be playing for the Phillies RBI team this year, the junior team, and we're hosting the, the RBI World Series, uh, RBI uh, Regionals this year um, at 7th and Packer. That's the weekend of July 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, I believe it is. Um, and the Monarchs also play... We play in the uh, John Marzano Scout League, and we also play in the Tri-State Elite League. If you go on tsebaseball.net in the 15-, 16-year-old age group, you can see our schedule on there um, if they want to come out and watch. We play down at FDR Park, the older kids. Um, and every Saturday and Sunday, our younger kids play here at Anderson Rec Center, the 12s, the 10s, and the 8s. We have games going on all day, every weekend. And if uh, people want to know more about the Anderson Monarchs, where can they go on the web for that? Yeah, andersonmonarchs.org, or you can contact me, uh, sbandora at andersonmonarchs.org. And, you know, with, with any questions or requests, and I'd be happy to talk to them. And you guys are on Twitter too, right? Yep, at Anderson Monarch. Anderson Monarch. Okay, great. Yeah, no S, not enough characters. Um, okay, well. Well, I also well, wanted to mention, if I could, yeah. we we also 
paid tribute to Claire Smith, who was a writer for the – she's the first uh, yep. female baseball, Major League Baseball beat writer when she was with the Hartford Current and then the New York Times, and she's a real trailblazer. She won the Jay Taylor Spink Award this year, so she's going into the Hall of Fame in the writer's wing. Um, it's the highest honor a baseball writer can get, and she traveled with us on the first tour through the Midwest in our in our bus with us um, back in 1997, um, and we, it was great that she could come back and we could honor her as well. We had her throw out the first pitch the other day, and she and Monet received the first pitch. So two female pioneers on the field, so it, it was really great. It, it it's got to be neat to know that what you guys are doing is helping to forward the conversation of not not just how society, you know, is progressing and how people are looking at each other, but how baseball looks at itself because baseball still has a ways to go, I think, in a lot of ways to be where I think we all want it to be. And, and you guys right. are a really nice part of that. And my mission has been all along and continues to be to convince Major League Baseball that the greatest pool, untapped pool of talent is right here in our inner cities, that the opportunities there and up until this point, it's 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 really just being treated as a community service project for Major League Baseball and Major League clubs. And until they start taking it serious and and you know treating it as a player development program like they do in the Dominican Republic, then you know nothing's going to change. So once we get that attitude change and prove that talent is here, if you want, if you invest in it, then uh, you know that's we're just going to continue to fight for that. Well, thank you, Steve, for helping taking the lead on that. And uh, we'll be watching with you guys, with everything that you guys do uh, in the future and hopefully many more years of success with the Anderson Monarchs. Steve Bandura, thanks for coming on the podcast. All right. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. I have Mike Sadowski back with me from philliesnation.com. And by now we know who the fine, who the only all-star is on the Phillies this year. I'm <laughs> If there's any, we're recording this on Sunday. If there's any way that there are two all stars uh, from the Phillies, I will eat my hat. Um, and in retrospect, but we know who the Phillies' lone all star is this year. It's probably Pat Neshek, maybe it's Aaron Altair, who knows? But we're going to talk about some of the bad all stars in Phillies history because this year is going to probably be a bad all star year. So Mike, I, he has a piece up on Monday today about the worst all stars of the last like 20 or so years. Um, Mike, first off. You know, there's there's a couple different ways that you look at a bad all star. You can have the bad all star who was voted in for some reason by the fans and and he just never merited it, or the guy who just did not play well enough that year and shouldn't have ever been an all star to begin with. This guy, had, I think, checked both boxes. Mariano Duncan in 1994, he was voted in right that year. He was. I think as Phillies fans, we owe the baseball world an apology. Um, <laughs> I think we should all like say, hey, sorry, we. I don't think we realized it at the time, but yeah, looking back, we really owe everyone an apology, so sorry. But yeah, so in 93, the Phillies broke all their attendance records, and everyone was loving on the Phillies, and so next year they come in, and they vote in Mariano Duncan at second base. Only problem is, they're, the, the, the millions and millions of Philly, or the, the hundreds of thousands of Philly, millions of fans of, of Philly fans that came in voted Mariano Duncan in. For, for what? I don't know. <laughs> it was like he had like eight home runs and and like thirty yard guys. His on base percentage was at three ten. He was hit like two seventy. I mean, it was it, it. There is nothing, nothing at all that says that Mariano Duncan should have made that All Star team. And even worse, he was he was still platooning with Morandini. Yep. So 
<laughs> I don't. I'm not even sure how Duncan was the uh, Duncan was the choice at second base over Morandini, and then he gets voted into the All Star game over Hall of Famer Craig Bezier. Yeah. <laughs> by, by the way, does Craig Bezier's Craig number does Craig Bezier's Craig Bezier's numbers in 1994? 318 with a 411 on base percentage, 483 slug. He had 44 doubles to lead the National League. 39 stolen bases also led the National League. Maybe, arguably, his best overall season. And he lost the uh, starting job in the All-Star game to Mariano Duncan. We, we owe, not only do we owe the baseball world an apology, we owe Craig Bichu an apology. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because, let's see, I was, four, uh, I was 19, so yeah, I probably voted for Mariano Duncan. Uh, <laughs> was, I'm pretty sure I did, and I probably voted for Mariano Duncan, too. I am sorry, Craig Biggio. The Phillies, all Phillies fans are sorry. I'm speaking for everyone. <laughs> you deserve to go instead of Mariano Duncan. Well, another guy that uh, we voted in back in 2014, uh, very recently, and this is sort of sentimental, I'm sure. But Chase Utley was voted into the All Star game in 2014. Is that right? He was voted in by the by the uh, by the fans. He was voted in um, because, because he's Chase Utley, and because but I did look back, and there, there really wasn't much else I, I think d gordon was like yeah. the, the back and i think he was he it was like a typical d gordon year before his before his breakout where he had i think he had like 20 steals but like a 290 on base percentage or something like that um but yeah i mean that was it was obvious that he was on there because we're phillies fan 2014 phillies fans were actually still going to games mm-hmm. um unlike this year and last year but 2014 they were, were still kind of sitting on that hangover, and we were still going to games, so the Phillies were still getting voted in, and it just so happened that Chase Utley got voted in. Yeah. Um, I know you also have a special place in your heart for the 1989 vote-in of Mike Schmidt by the fans after he retired. Uh, do you want to just yeah. do a Mike Schmidt take here? I, don't, I, I, mean, I, I, I hate to do that, but do you want to do a Mike Schmidt take? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, that, that was the first time I can remember uh, I was 14, and that was the first time I remember I started questioning the all-star balloting process. Um, like, no one else seemed to bat an eyelash. And I was like, oh, cool, Mike Schmidt, let's let's get him in there. And people actually voted for him, and he had retired three a, a month and a half earlier. And it's the first time I'm like, why are people doing this? <laughs> my, even my father, my, my father was like, ah, oh, it's fine, he's... He, it's his last hurrah. He gets to go out and tip his cap and everything. But I said, he's taking someone's spot. He's like, ah, no, nah, they'll figure it out. I'm like, well, he's got to, what if he plays an inning? Then he's got, then he's taking someone's spot. Ah, forget it. It's fine. But that was, a, so like the old timers like didn't care. And that someone who wasn't playing baseball was getting voted into the all-star game. Like, was I going to be next? Like, would someone vote me in too? Like <laughs> if I had a like, strong enough campaign for it. Um, but, I mean, Mike Schmidt's my favorite player of all time. I love Mike Schmidt, but I just found that as completely bass-ackwards that, uh, that, that people were actually doing this. Well, my pick for the worst Phillies All-Star selection was in 1999. Um, someone that I think back then I even just did not really like a lot. He just felt like the kind of guy that I didn't want to root for ever. And there's nothing based on that whatsoever. He might be a very nice guy. I have no idea. But Paul Bird. 
Um, Paul Bird was among the long line of like pseudo number two starters that the Phillies tried to push down our throats between 1996, let's say, and 2002. <laughs> like, here's another guy who you think might be a 20-game winner one day. Let's see what he has. And in 1999, he seemed to be on his way to 20 wins. In the first half of that year, he went 11-5. and five. That's very good, right? But yep. he had a 3.94 ERA, which is not necessarily all-star level. And yes, I know 1999 was right in the heart of the steroid era. But 3.94 <laughs> ERA is still not great for an all-star. He also had 65 strikeouts, which doesn't seem bad, but he walked 40 batters that half. Yeah. So he seemed like a slightly above-average player in the first half. And it wasn't like he was the only all-star on that 99 team. The Phillies had about three guys in that year. I think yeah. Lieberthal was in there, maybe Abreu. Like, why is Paul Bird on the All-Star team in 1999? Questions? Answers? Well, I, they maybe the maybe the American League had no lefties that year. Um, so they just brought him in to they, – they wanted to bring him in to hit righties because – there isn't a left-handed hitter on the planet that doesn't like Paul Bird. Um, I forget what his splits were, but they were ungodly awful. I don't, I don't think I ever saw him get a left-hander out, in, ever. In 1999 against lefties, uh, lefties went 302 with a 370 OBP. Um, and I guess, I guess they hit 17 home runs. That's really funny. 17 home runs for both righties and lefties against Paul Bird. That year. He gave up 34 home runs in 1999. How was this guy an all-star? <laughs> <laughs> well, 17 home runs to righties, which he faces 75% of the time, and 17 home runs to lefties, which he only faces like 25% of the time, uh, that's not good. Yeah, no. <laughs> that was, that was the, that was, that's my image of Paul Bird as another lefty hitting a home run off him. Well, his second half of 1999 uh, showed that he was definitely more like a marginal player than an actual all-star. In the second half, he put up a 5-6-1 ERA. He struck out 41 hitters and walked 30, and he only went 4-6. and six. It was a good year for the <laughs> Phillies offense. Let's put it that way. That's why he well, made the All-Star it, game. <laughs> yeah. And, but he, uh, but I, if you remember, 1999, they were somewhat close. I think like right around this time, like by July 4th, I think they were only like three games out, four, maybe like five games out. But they had a series coming up against the Braves, and... They won, it was the first game of a doubleheader, and they won the first game of the doubleheader, and then lost the first one, and, and then got swept up for the rest of the rest of the series. But for a while, like I think after they won the first game of that doubleheader against the Braves, they cut it to like four games, and people were starting to think that they might actually do something because they had a decent core, um, and Paul Bird was part of that because he did have like a decent first half. Um, but yeah, then that didn't work out. Yeah, I, I was trying to cue up how the 1999 Phillies did. Um, and you're right. I think they probably – I don't know if they were like an 86 win. They went 77-85, so they actually plunged quite a bit there in the second half. Yeah, they did, just like Paul Bird did. Yeah. Um, but I think that was the year That was the year they thought they were close enough, so they actually went out and signed Andy Ashby. Because uh, Andy Ashby's wife is from the Scranton area. He met him when he was playing in, in Scranton – met her when he was playing in Scranton, and – she wanted to move closer to home, so he signed with the Phillies, and that went as bad as could possibly <laughs> anyone could possibly have had. Yeah. I remember him coming off the field yelling at fans and stuff. Ugh. On, on August 25th of 1999, the Phillies beat San Diego 15-1. to This was after, on August 24th, they beat San Diego... What did they beat them? 18-2. So after two consecutive waxings <laughs> of the Padres... They were 67 and 59, so they were definitely in the hunt 
Yeah. That was August 25th. A month oh, later, geez. on September 17th, let's say, the Phillies, uh, let, no, September 18th, they lost to the Mets 11-1 to and were 70-78. and Holy moly. So in one month, not even a month, they completely, I mean, they had a losing streak of about seven games and then another losing streak of about 12 games, like back-to-back. And yeah, there was a I win was, in between the two. One win. Yeah, I knew it was like a catastrophic fall off, but I know I I do remember them being in it for a while there. Yeah, well, that's the story of being a Phillies fan. They were in it for a while there. Uh, all right, Mike. Uh, well, hopefully we get some sort of action in the All Star game. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe Pat Neshek gets to throw an eighth inning and give up four runs. We'll see. That'd be great. Yeah, that would be great. All right, Mike. Uh, we'll talk to you later. All right, talk to you, Tim. My thanks to Mike Sadowski for coming on the podcast. Also, thanks to Steve Bandora of the Anderson Monarchs for talking with me. Go check out the Monarchs if you get a chance. They're down in South Philly. They do great work. The kids are not only great kids, but they're really good ball players. Demonstrated by the Taney Dragons and how they played in the Little League World Series some years back. A lot of those kids go on to the Monarchs, and they're, they're just really good players. So check them out. Also, thanks to bensound.com for the music for the podcast. The podcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, and YouTube.com slash PhilliesNation, PhilliesNation.com, Instagram at PhilliesNation underscore, and Twitter at PhilliesNation. Phillies made some really big news over the last week. In the international free agent signing period, they had maybe the best day of, uh, the best period, I should say, of anybody. They signed a shortstop named Luis Garcia, who's the 12th best international free agent according to those who rate international free agents. 16 years old, very good shortstop, switch hitter, should be a top-of-the-lineup threat. Of course, he's 16, so quite a ways to go before any of that actually comes to fruition. But they also signed Carlos Vargas, Carlos Betancourt, Cesar Rodriguez, Israel Puello, Christian Hernandez. Vargas, Betancourt, and Rodriguez are highly ranked as well. By Baseball America. So it's a really good effort by the Phillies in the international free agent class. I think for a long time we were kind of wondering, when are the Phillies going to really go big in the international free agent class? And they have made some good signings. Rodolfo Duran has been one of them. But this year seems to be, and Juan Luis was another one, but this year seems to be a year where uh, the Phillies really made a big splash and seem to be the talk of baseball with the international free agent period. That's great to see. So, Phillies, I'm not going to say we're going to get some wins anymore. It's kind of ridiculous, right? Let's just watch baseball. Let's see if Nick Williams can continue to play well. Maybe we'll see another call-up this week. At the very least, Pat Neshek is going to the All-Star game. Hoorah! Yay! Woohoo! For the Phillies Nation podcast, I'm Tim Malcolm. We'll see you soon.